You are now listening to the Charity Church Podcast. And I love the energy of Alex, don't you? That's good stuff, good stuff. Way to start the year, a baptism like that. Um, How did you start your year last Sunday? Were you like Tom, sitting in the recliner, watching the message, eating a bowl of cereal? I was sitting in church in Massachusetts when I realized that I wasn't feeling well. And then, as the day progressed and Tracy and I started our journey home, I'm sitting over in the passenger seat, shivering to death, about to die, found out later in the week I had the flu. Terrible case of the flu. I don't think I ever remember having the flu that bad. But boy, Tamiflu was my friend. And so I'm feeling much better. Got a little scratchy throat from all the coughing, but we're gonna make it through the message. And I'm glad you are here. Thank you for being here today. And if you did watch the message last week, I talked about um, really what I'm gonna talk about over the next few weeks, and that is the pathway to maturity. Because my vision, my desire, my longing and prayer for this church is that we will mature in our walk with Jesus Christ. No matter where you are, you may have showed up here today and you may not be a follower of Jesus. You just thought starting out 2023, church would be the place you ought to start. And so you're here today. You have no idea what that looks like. My prayer for you is that you'll take a step of faith and enter into a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Maybe you are new to the faith and you don't know what steps to take. My desire for you and prayer for you is that you'll take a step of maturity And then for those of us who have been in this for a long, long time, we're never too old to mature in our faith. So wherever you are along that that journey, my desire is that you would mature and grow in your faith. And so today, we're going to start out with something I believe is pretty basic uh, when it comes to even raising children, as I talked about in the video last week. Um, And that is one of the things that, that kids start to do is start to learn identity, right? They start to learn identity. It was really neat. I was after the first service, I was standing back here talking to someone and, and Tracy was out in the lobby with Baker, who's our little one-year-old, and he saw me and he identified me out of all the people. He identified me as his pops and he wanted me and he actually came to me and he's reaching for me. And so isn't it so cool when they start to do that? They start to reach for you and want you, wanting somebody besides just mama. And and that was a cool moment. Just a few moments ago, he identified who I was. And so as kids grow up, they quickly identify mama. They learn to identify daddy pretty quickly as well. And then it even goes beyond that to grandparents and aunts and uncles and friends and other people and siblings, of course, and identity. And then they start to learn who they are. They respond to their name. Uh, you know, until they get to be two, and then they run from their name. I don't know what happens there. But, but it's just neat to see that. And so as Christians, <clears throat> we need to learn identity. We need to learn who we are in Jesus Christ. And what I know today is that there are a lot of people who are in identity crisis, identity crisis. And in our culture today, there's a, there's a big thing going on, and it's been in the news for quite some time now, and that is gender identity, right? And it's like, uh, it, for something that those of us who have been around for a while, you know, I grew up, I was born in the 70s, and, or and 70, and grew up uh, in the 70s and 80s, and, you know, that really wasn't a big issue. You just kind of knew your gender. It was pretty natural, I thought. But somewhere along the way, the lines got blurred. 
And somebody, somewhere along the way, and I tried to study it out this week, I couldn't find definitive pathways on this, but, but I'm going to kind of give you some names. But somebody decided that they would take words that were synonymous terms, and those words are sex and gender. You know, what sex are you? What gender are you? They were synonymous terms. But along the way somewhere, there was a guy by the name of Eric Erickson back in the 1950s, I think it was, that he came up with these eight stages of psychosocial, I think it's development. And so at stage number five, he says in adolescence, there is an identity crisis that adolescents run into. And they are kind of trying to find themselves. And you, you and I went through that, you know, it was like your voice started changing for guys and, you know, bodies started changing and all of these things start going on and you're trying to find your identity and where you fit in and all that kind of stuff. And just a natural part of growing up, well, you know, somebody else came along and started building onto that. And there was a, a lady by the name of Judith Butler back in 1990. She wrote a book called Gender Trouble. And Judith Butler is a feminist and she's a feminist who wrote this book, and in it, she aims to separate the definitions of sex and gender so that gender and desire can be what she says flexible, free-floating, and not caused by other stable factors. So meaning that your sex is what you're biologically born as, male or female. However, your gender is something that is determined to you by your cultural uh, interaction and how you kind of feel within the the environments around you. So that would be flexible, free-floating, and not caused by anything that would be stable. No definitive, no black and white, no yes or no male, female. It can be flexible. This is in the gender trouble that she references. And so we look at that, and I look at that, and I go, somebody has really overcomplicated something that I believe God made pretty clear. And now we have a culture and a generation even that's exploring gender identity as a result of you know, feminism and, and liberal thought and things that or we would look at and we'd go, that's just contrary to how God created man and woman in the very beginning and it should be very, very simple, but it's become very, very complicated. And we would look at that and we would think that that's, that's a problem and, and rightly so, I believe. However, I believe that even more than that, we find a lot of people in their own identity crisis. And it may not be male or female. It may be other things. There may be things where you've placed all of your identity in your job, in your success. For men, we, we, we kind of strive toward, and, and women to some degree, I would assume as well, but we strive toward excellence and we strive toward success in our careers. And many times we find our identity in our job and in the successes of that. Me as a pastor, there's been times of my ministry where I've just kind of found my identity and how healthy the church is and how good the church is. And it's a, it's, it was a struggle. Then there, there's an identity crisis because when things don't go well at your job, you lose your identity and you start to attach your things and you start to look for other ways to feel valued and to feel worth anything. For some, you've attached your identity to your marriage. And then when your spouse is no longer around through death or divorce, you lose your way, you lose your identity, and you start to try to find yourself. You may go through some kind of a crisis in order to find your identity. For some parents, they find all of their identity in their kids. 
And their kids and raising their kids, their whole life revolves around their kids and everything that their kids do and everything their kids say and everything their kids want to do. Their life revolves around that. And when the kids are grown and gone or when they don't have the time for you like you think they should, you go through an identity crisis because you no longer have that feel of value by your children. And so there's a problem there. And so we all, to some degree, could say that we have an identity crisis that we deal with. And just like Butler desires a flexible, free-floating definition of gender, our identity can also be moving a moving target if it's not based upon a stable factor. We need something in our life that is stable because your job is not stable, your marriage may not be stable, your relationship with your kids may not be stable. Your successes may not be stable. Your other relationships may not be stable, or you can't find your identity there. And so we need something that is a stabilizing factor, and I believe that's who Jesus is for us. That no matter what we find in life and no matter what we deal with in life, if our identity is first in Jesus Christ and who he created us to be, male, female, single, married, uh, employed, unemployed, successful, not so successful, whatever the case may be, if our identity is in Christ, he is a stabilizing factor for all of us because he never changes. Life changes, but Jesus never changes. And what happens is Christians also find themselves in what we would call a Christian identity crisis. There are Christians who, at some point along the way, they determined that they were a sinner in need of a savior. And we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ and asked him to forgive us and to take us to heaven when we die. And we believe we're saved. However, we leave that moment or those, those, that, that brief period of time of, of that salvation when we, when we first get saved and we begin to live and act in ways that are contrary to the savior we claim to follow. And we find ourselves in a identity crisis. And the passage that we're gonna look at today is Paul addressing a church, the church of Corinth, who was a very immoral church. And they found themselves in an identity crisis because they had begun attaching themselves to things of the world that were not in keeping with who they were in Jesus Christ. Their maturing process of growing to be like Christ was not working out so well. They were growing to be more and more like the world than they were to be more and more like Christ. And Paul addresses it head on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, here's what he says. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but, not all things, but I will not be dominated by anything. <clears throat> Let me tell you what he means by this. You see these quotation marks? This little phrase, all things are lawful for me, and he says it twice. This was a common slogan that was going around the city of Corinth and the culture of the day. There were Christians who were living by this, this mantra, this slogan, that I'm now a follower of Jesus, I'm saved, so now I can go out and live any way that I want to live. I can participate in any activity I want to participate in. I can consume anything I want to consume. I can sleep with, live with, do whatever I want to do with anybody and everything because now I'm in Jesus Christ and I'm secure in that, so now all things are lawful for me. That was a slogan. 
For us, it might sound like, well, everybody's doing it, so it must be okay. It's culturally accepted within the church and outside the church, so it must be okay. All things are lawful for me. To which Paul responds, all things may be lawful for you. You may be able to get by with it for a season, but let me just tell you something. It is not helpful. It is not beneficial. It may be lawful and you may get by with it, but in the end, you're gonna pay a dear price for it. All things may be lawful, but not all things are helpful. He says, all things may be lawful, but he says, I will not be dominated by anything. I may be able to consume and it'd be lawful for me to consume, but at some point, that consumption is going to dominate me. My participation in that particular sin, that particular activity, that particular substance, that particular relationship, I can participate in it all I want to because in some degree, it may seem lawful for me, but in the end, it's not helpful, and in the end, it's going to dominate and control you. And you may not even know that it's taken place. That's why my daughter and my son-in-law will not let my grandson play on this Oculus that I have for more than a few moments. Do you know why? Because after a while, it starts to affect him in a way that he just gets grouchy and it dominates his little brain to a place that, that it doesn't look healthy. He was at the house yesterday and he played on it when it was time to go. He was grouchy, and his mom and dad already know that that takes place because they don't want him to be dominated by that little device that he places on his head and, and, and lives in that little world for a little while. So just like that, there are certain things that Christians participate in, and it dominates us, and it's not helpful for us. So you can't live by the slogan that everyone's doing it, so it must be okay, or I'm in Christ, and it's not going to affect that, so it must be okay for me. No, it's not. Maturity says no. Maturity says it may be lawful, but I don't have to participate in it. That's what maturity is. Maturity knows how to set the things aside, knows how to say no to certain things. He goes on, and he deals with another little slogan. It was going around, and it said, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And what they were saying by saying that is they were saying that food is meant for the stomach and stomach was meant for the food. So sexual gratification and satisfaction was meant for the body. So the body was meant for sexual satisfaction and gratification. They were equating eating with sexual immorality. And he was saying, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant, this is how he uh, clarifies what he's talking about. The body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So sexual pleasure was meant to be enjoyed, they're saying, just like food was meant to be enjoyed. So any way and every way you want to enjoy sexual gratification, you just go out and participate in it. That's what the, the people in the Corinthian church were saying and in the culture. So he was saying that, listen, God is the one who is going to, is in control of both, <clears throat> not just food, but also your body. And he ultimately has the authority over both of those things. And he is the authority over your body. And he goes on in verse 14, and he says, and God raised the Lord, and he will also raise up us by his power. So God has ultimate authority over our bodies. And if you're a follower of Jesus, as we'll see in just a few moments, your body does not belong to you any longer. It belongs to God. And that's what they're saying. Paul was just combating these common slogans that were going around that was just becoming the mantra of the day. It's like, if it feels good, do it. 
If it's culturally acceptable, it must be okay. And so he was like, immature people, they will go to the candy jar first and enjoy everything that they can. And, and, and as a mature person, we go, you can't do that. All those sweets that you got for Christmas and over the new year, man, some of you went to the trash can on January 1st and you threw it away. Do you know why you did that? Because you knew that you had been living unhealthy for the last few weeks and eating anything and everything that was on the cabinet or on the counter and you just wanted to consume it whether it was sweet or healthy or unhealthy. And maturity says, at some point, we have to stop. And a Christian who is growing in their maturity knows that their identity is in Christ. It is not in what the world would offer us as satisfaction and gratification. And we say no to things because our identity is in Christ who owns us, who died for us, who redeemed us, who purchased us, as Paul goes on to say here in just a few moments. He says, do not know that your bodies are members of Christ. You are at one with Jesus Christ. When you became a follower of his, you became one with Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Paul goes down this road and he's saying, if we say that we are members of Christ and we're saying that we're a part of the body of Christ, would we go out and take this body that is joined with Christ and join this same body with a prostitute? Well, would we do that? He said, no, we, we would never do something like that. We're united with Christ in our bodies and our sins affect Christ. When you sin, when you live immorally, when you participate in things that may be lawful but are not helpful, things that are lawful but yet they dominate you, when you participate in those things, you are affecting your relationship with Christ because you are joined with him. At the moment of salvation, bodily, you are joined. And as believers, we join a body of believers. So your sins and my sins, they affect one another. The sins in the body of Christ affect the other parts of the body. You're thinking, man, this is a heavy message for the first sermon of the, of the year. Thanks, Marty. Well, I thought we'd get off on the right foot, okay? Just kind of know where we're headed as we mature. We're going to start laying aside every sin and weight that easily holds us back. Let's get rid of some of these today. So Paul says, would we join the body of Christ with the prostitute? Never. We would never do anything like that. Or do you not know that he, he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, he quotes a passage from Genesis, the two will become one flesh. He's saying there's something about the sexual um, act, there's something about coming together in that, that act that joins two people together. There's something about it. And he says, I want you to know, you would never want the body of Christ to be joined to a prostitute, so why would you allow your body to be joined with someone immorally? because you are the body of Christ. But he who is joined to the Lord, he says, becomes one spirit with him. So not only are you one body, but you're also one spirit with Christ. So we're joined together in bodily through Jesus Christ and as the body of Christ, so our sins affect one another, but we're also joined with Christ in spirit. And what he means by that is the moment that you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God comes and lives inside of you. All the time, he's with you everywhere you go. 
When you said the bad word last week, he was with you and he heard it. When you, when you said that thing to the driver on your way back from Massachusetts, <laughs> Tracy, <laughs> he heard it. You know, everything that you do, he's with you because he indwells you and me as followers of Jesus Christ. He says, so you are one spirit with him. So therefore, he says, do this, flee sexual immorality. This is the equivalent to saying, don't touch the hot stove. Keep your hand off the oven. Keep your hand off the burner. Don't run out into traffic. Flee every form of sexual immorality. What does he mean by sexual immorality? It's any form of sexual satisfaction or gratification outside of a marriage relationship between one man and one woman. That's what he means by any form of sexual immorality. So if you are being sexually fulfilled in any way outside of your husband or your wife, you are living in sexual immorality. And that's what he says, and you need to flee from it. You need to run from it. Just like you tell your little toddler, don't touch the hot stove. Don't touch the oven. Don't run into traffic. God is saying, as a maturing believer in Christ, you need to flee sexual immorality. Because as a new believer, this may be one of the hardest things for you to flee. Because it's so prevalent in our culture. It's easy to find it. It's easy to get to, and it's easy to okay and justify because the world says, do it. The world says that it's okay because the body was meant for food and the body was meant for sexual gratification and satisfaction. So go find it anywhere you want to find it. And he is saying, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But there's just something he says about sexually, the sexually immoral person, they sin against his own body. There's something about sexual sin that is unique in and of itself because of the way it affects you. Not just your body, but your mind, your spirit, your, your, uh, your psychology, all of that. Everything is affected by sexual sin. So don't touch it, stay away and flee it and run from it as fast and as hard as you possibly can. He says, or don't you know, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Listen, he, what he's saying is, listen, you were someone that God looked down upon. And he says, you know what? He or she is worth redeeming. I know that they're gonna be caught up in sin. I know that they're going to be headed to a place called hell, but they are worth saving. So God sent his only begotten son into this world to die for your sins and for my sins, your sexual immoral sin, your other sins that you might commit. Jesus died for those things. And you were bought with a price. And the price that you were purchased with was Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ on the cross was what God did to redeem you. And he's bought you. He's brought you out of sin and into life. You are identified with Jesus Christ. The life that Jesus has is the same life that you have. So you were purchased with this immeasurable sacrifice of the Son of God. 
And when you gave your life to Christ, your body became a temple of the Holy Spirit. And he took up residence in you and he is with you every single place you go. He's with you on Friday nights when you'd like to leave him behind. He's with you on Saturday night when you'd like to leave him behind. He's with you on the golf course when you'd like to leave him behind. He's with you when you're out with the girls, even when you'd like to leave him behind and live your life in any way that you want to and not have Jesus looking over your shoulder. He's not looking over your shoulder. He's looking through the window of your heart and he's with you every single way, every single place because you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives inside you and you were bought with a great price. You're worth something to him. So the first thing that I want you to realize is you determine whose you are through your salvation. Listen, the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you determine that you belong to Jesus Christ. And let me just tell you, that is a great place to belong because he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never turn his back on you. When you do cross the line and you sin, he's there ready and willing to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He's not going to turn his back on you. His love for you is unconditional. Unlike any other love that you'll ever find in this world, Jesus's love is unique. And he's saying, I want you to find your identity in that, not in anything or anyone else in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And when you do, you have a security that you'll never, ever regret. So you determine whose you are through your salvation. He goes on and he says, so I want you to glorify God in your body. You take your body now and everything that you do, you glorify God with it. As a follower of Jesus, your highest calling, my highest calling is to glorify God in everything I do and in everything I say. And the way we do that is by living in obedience to him. We live in obedience to God. If God says move, we move. If God says stay, we stay. If God says no, we say no. If God says yes, we say yes. And we live and walk in obedience to him because he knows what's best. You may think, man, God, you just want to take all the fun out of life. You want to take all the fun out of life. No, he doesn't. He wants to take all the heartache out of your life, all the unnecessary heartaches, and even the, the heartaches that you can't avoid. He wants to be your comforter. He wants to be the place you run to, the place that when you do lose your job or when you do lose your marriage or when you do lose your children, when you're not successful, that you can run to him and go, listen, all of those things may change, but God, I know you never change. And I'm gonna run to Jesus and he's going to be my identity because I'm in him first and I want to live in obedience to him and I wanna glorify him in everything that I do. And he has bought you with a great price. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. And when I was growing up, my dad always told me, if you borrow something from somebody, you always give it back to them in as good a shape or better shape than what, the way you got it. If you break it, you buy it. You buy them a new one. Listen, God has purchased you with the blood of Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been purchased with this great, uh, this great price. And he wants you to live for him and to glorify him in everything that you do. And so if you're seeking your identity in other things, listen, find your identity in Christ. 
Know who he is. Know that you belong to him and know that you're gonna demonstrate whose you are through your obedience to him. When people look around and they see the life that you're living, they should know, hey, they must be a follower of Jesus. Something's different about the way they treat other people. Something's different about the way they interact. Something's different about their marriage. Something's different about the way they live the single life. Something's different about the way they raise their children. Something's different about their work ethic. Something's just different about them when heartache comes their way. When things don't go the way they prayed or thought they should, something is just different. And it's because our identity is in Jesus Christ and not in the circumstances or the people around us. And that's what I want for you. I want your identity to be secure in Jesus Christ today. So determine whose you are through your salvation. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus today, great day to do that. Man, we would love to show you how you can become a follower of Jesus and find your identity in him, that the never changing one. And then we demonstrate whose we are through our obedience. We demonstrate it through being obedient children as we mature and as we learn that all things may be lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things may be lawful, but I'm not gonna be dominated by anything. I'm not gonna let anything control my life other than the Holy Spirit living inside of me. But Paul also wrote, he said, don't even be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be controlled, be filled with the Spirit and let Him control your life. Find your identity in Him today. So if you've never put your faith and trust in Him, we would love to help you today. If you would just bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. And if there's anybody here in the room and you'd say, today I would love to become a follower of Jesus. I wanna put my faith and trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Would you just raise your hand up? Anybody at all, you've never done that before and today is the day for you to do that. You just slip your hand up. Anybody at all, in the balcony? All right, anyone else? Just pray this prayer with me. Dear Father, I thank you today that you have made a way for my salvation. Today I confess to you that I'm a sinner, that I need to be saved, and I put my faith and trust in Jesus today to do just that. And it's in his name I pray, amen. Can we give it up for those today who put their faith and trust in Jesus? Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. And if you're living in disobedience to God, maybe today you just need to get on your face before him and say, God, Today, I want people to recognize me as a follower of you by my obedient life toward you. Amen.